Hello, and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business and economics. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scotland. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. So Sarah, just a bit of housekeeping before we get into the episode. Today, we have a winner from our draw for some Peak merchandise uh, for March. Tyler from Prince Edward Island, we're going to get your merch pack packed up and shipped to you this week. So look for that in the mail. And if you would like to win a merch pack yourself, uh, you can do so just by going and leaving a review on the Apple Podcasts store or whatever they're calling it now, the podcast app. I don't know. You know what it is. Send us a screenshot to freelunch at readthepeak.com, uh, letting us know who you are uh, and you know the review that you left. And we'll enter you in a draw at the end of the month to win a merch pack. There's a sweater in there, a hat, a tote bag. Uh, it's good stuff. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get into the episode. So the federal budget came out last week. We're recording this. So it'll be two weeks ago when this is released. And one of the things that I think raised a few eyebrows was the lack of funding for housing or sort of just a lack of policy around housing in general because it's such... A big issue, at least among people who don't already own their home outright in this country, uh, and sort of to see it put by the wayside was was a bit of a surprise. But you know, previous budgets have included quite a bit of money for housing, various programs and policies. There's you know the housing accelerator fund, which God knows what that does. But sort of all we seem to get are occasional announcements of twelve new units in Edmonton or eighteen new units in. St. John's. And it seems like the output in terms of new housing units doesn't match up with the level of funding, which is in the you know tens and tens of billions of dollars. So it got me wondering, why is that? What is the gap between what's being committed and what's actually being produced? It's a good question. And I can guarantee that you and I are not the only people that are shocked about the budget allocation or the allocation of money within the budget, um, especially for one of the number one concerns that people have right now. If we take a step back, big picture, right? We're still having these conversations within the context of Canada kind of welcoming in a lot of new people year over year, very ambitious immigration targets. There's really no sign of demand letting up, which is why it's so important to have these conversations. Right now, um, it's going to continue being important to have these conversations. And um, we're going to look into what else is going on. Maybe we didn't see it in the budget this year, but what else can we do um, to support right the building of affordable housing in this country? Yes, and we're very lucky today to have two guests on who can answer these questions for us. Jacob Gorenkoff leads the affordable housing policy and advocacy work of the Canadian Housing and Renewal Association. And Marika Albert is the policy director at BC Nonprofit Housing Association. Jacob and Marika, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks My for having pleasure. Me. Yeah. So I think just to kick this off, can Jacob, you tell us about the definition of affordable housing. Because when I think of affordable housing, I sort of have two different ideas in my head. One is just, you know, something that I can afford the rent for. uh, And the other is kind of public housing from, you know, 60s, 70s, when we used to build public housing. What is affordable housing uh, in the way that you conceive of it? 
Thanks for the question, Taylor. Um, so wh when you're thinking about affordable housing, you're thinking about two relatively different concepts that sound very similar. So uh, a lot of people are thinking about housing affordability, um, which is basically uh, when you spend 30% or less of your gross income on uh, your housing needs, which is obviously really difficult to do in the, the current uh, economic context. But when we're talking about affordable housing, we're, we're typically referring to purpose-built rentals that are available at below market rates to people that have low or moderate incomes. So um, I know we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but uh, for those uh, units to be offered at below market rates, um, which is obviously something really difficult to do nowadays, um, you usually need government grants to subsidize those costs for the affordable housing provider. So most affordable housing in Canada is provided through the National Housing Strategy. Um, that strategy is currently an $89 billion collection of programs <clears throat> designed to reduce homelessness and core housing need by creating or renewing primarily affordable rental housing. And it's typically like that type of housing is usually offered by municipalities, nonprofits, or housing co-ops. Um, and they usually work with uh, private sector developers or construction companies who help create the units. And then once they're created, those nonprofits, co-ops or municipalities will um, own them and manage them. What percentage of the population relies on affordable housing in the way that you've defined it? Um, and how many are maybe like on wait lists to get into affordable housing and have been able to? That's such a great question. One of the things that we, we've been using in our advocacy at the national level it is talking about the the number of households that are currently in poor housing need across the country, which is one and a half million ho households, according to the 2020 yeah. census. Um, and, and that typically means that they, they can't afford market rate housing. But at mm -hmm. the same time, we also know that across the country, there are only about 655,000 units of affordable housing. So yeah. in order to adequately house all these people, we would need to more than double our stock of affordable housing, which is like mm -hmm. obviously a very tall task. And I just want to add to that too, because those 650,000 units that we have a deficit of essentially, we also, um, we also, you know, through various point in time homeless counts know that at any given time in Canada, there's roughly that many people who are experiencing housing instability and homelessness. So we see like a direct correlation um, between uh, the lack of housing units. I mean, I think there's a bit more uh, nuance and sophistication to that, but we do see that there is a fairly, like you can draw a line between um, the, the, the lack of housing units that we have and the increasing numbers of people experiencing homelessness across the country. Like this is not a, not a regional issue. This is a, this is a nationwide issue. So the deficit nationwide would be around 900,000 affordable housing units. That's what we're looking at. Yeah, about there. So yeah. why do we need affordable housing units in the sense that you're talking about at all? Why not just, you know, build lots of market units and increase supply and prices go down and that solves it. You know, that's a theory that's out there. Mm -hmm. Does that work? Does that not work? The what do you market. think about that? Yeah. Marie yeah, the market answer. Yeah. yeah, Dick, you want me to, because I'm like dying to answer this question. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, what we're actually seeing right now um, is the failure of the market to provide housing that meets every person's need in communities. So um, 
we're 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 actually see, we we abandoned investment into housing, particularly at the federal level and at the provincial level somewhat as well, um, forty years ago. And we kind of left it up. Governments at the time were like, okay, we're going to test this. Uh, you know, we're going to leave it up to the market to time to take care of housing. And what it did was it actually kind of an unfettered housing market meant that they they were not developers, municipalities uh, were not building uh, affordable housing units anymore. There was no profit in it. So if you have a housing market that's driven by profit, you are definitely going to leave behind a huge uh, chunk of the population, people who are making minimum wage jobs. People who are even what we would consider making middle-income jobs now are being priced out of the housing market. And I'm not talking about ownership. I'm also talking about rental, right? So we, we actually are experiencing market failure on a, on a huge level. I do think that we can't deliver, like Jake said earlier, we can't deliver affordable housing at all with, um, and housing that meets all the needs in every community um, without some investment from government. We absolutely just can't do that. Doesn't matter what the interest rates are, doesn't matter what the, the market is doing, we actually just have to intervene. Yeah, it, exactly what Marika said. I think she put it yeah. really well. Um, what, what, what we're seeing right now is both a, a big market failure, but it's also a big mm -hmm. policy failure. And yeah. governments, no matter like what your political bent, even if you're very conservative, you, you have to think like, okay, if the market is failing, we need to have a pro-market orientation and correct those market failures. And right now we're seeing that we're not doing that because there are all these people, like hundreds of thousands of people that can't get into housing that they can afford. And so we, sure, market forces are really important to any economy, but we, we still need the government, like, like all levels of government, really, to correct those market mm -hmm. failures. Because right now, like Marika said, we're, we're seeing people not just with low incomes, but people with moderate incomes that aren't able to afford a, a place to live. Um, so ba basically, affordable housing is a remedy to those market failures. And we need government mm -hmm. policies and programs that will help like actually position that as a solution for everybody. Yeah. What would those policies look like that can adequately incentivize developers to kind of move towards the other end of the spectrum where they're taking on projects that aren't as profitable as like the high rises that we're seeing in mm -hmm. downtown Toronto? Okay, I love that question. So I, I think um, what, what we've been seeing recently is, at least at the federal level, um, when, when we think about policymaking, um, it, it's the same for every level of government, really, but especially at the federal government, we think about spending and we think about taxation. And so right now with the, the current suite of um, federal programs that, that are available, they're, they're primarily spending-based measures. We haven't really been touching on the, these tax policy things that we could be doing. And if we think about our neighbors to the south uh, in the states, um, they have this program that's really interesting. It's called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. And I find it fascinating. And I think there's potential for repurposing it to the Canadian context. And the idea behind it is that the federal government will give tax credits to the states. And then the states will open them up for basically bidding. It's really like an application-based process. And um, 
organizations that want to build affordable housing can apply for these credits and then they can sell them to construction companies, developers, uh, impact investors for uh, both cash or in-kind contributions. And it results in the creation of housing. So, or affordable housing, I should say. Um, so like, it's possible that if we use um, a program like that, we could get these developers and like, you know, the private sector that typically would want to build these, you know, like shoebox condos like Sarah and Taylor you see in Toronto all the time, uh, or at Marika sees in Vancouver, um, oh, yeah. and uh, like get them to actually build affordable homes. We could actually make it financially profitable for them to build mm -hmm. the homes that more people need. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And I think that there's also, I mean, so the, re I, I I've been to Toronto a few times, but I haven't been to all the neighborhoods, but I know that Toronto does share, uh, you know, similar uh, landscape in terms of, you know, three or four story walk up. What we would, what was the MERB, MERBs, you know, multi-unit residential buildings. Uh, and those were all incentivized. I mean, Vancouver is filled with them. And those were, and they're actually right now, currently some of our most affordable uh private market like rental units that we have uh, in the city and those were all built through tax incentives um, in the 60s and 70s from the federal government and when those started drying up we started uh, not uh, we you know developers moved on to condos because they were way more profitable they didn't get those tax incentives so digs you know this um, uh, you know a tax schemes I think are really important to incentivize particularly for developers um, and in provinces like ours there's all sorts of other taxes on top of, uh, of, of, of development. Um, and so uh, having a federal level tax incentive, I think it could be really beneficial. I, I wanna get into what the federal government used to do, and I guess the governments of all levels used to do on housing, uh, in, in a little bit, but I do wanna just probe this question of what the federal government is doing now and what their role in housing is today, because every you know few months, it seems we get another announcement of you know a few billion dollars here, a few billion dollars there for housing. I think, Jacob, you said it was what, 89, $90 billion you know, overall housing package. Uh, mm -hmm. Where did that money go? Where, like, did that build anything? What happened with <laughs> well, it, all of that spending? No, like, doesn't it didn't come here into BC? Uh, we did, <laughs> we did have uh, some investments, um, but uh, MLA or sorry, MP Jenny Kwan was able to get some uh, data from the Parliamentary Budget Office, and uh, what what was demonstrated was that. BC got 7% of the national housing strategy under all of the funding programs under the national housing strategy. So we actually didn't see a lot of that funding happening here. And we have one of the, one of the tightest, hottest rental and ownership markets in, in Canada, right? Us in Toronto. So uh, we're actually, we're waiting to see, and we were very disappointed in the federal budget, Well, we are waiting to see, you know, to see, to get more investment. Um, Jake, over to you. I just want to, <laughs> we don't get a lot here in BC, right? We're, we're kind of ignored a little bit, so. Yeah, and that, it's yeah. strange that BC would be ignored, especially given the state. Of I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, we were also shocked 
by what was in the yeah. federal budget. Like we, we were expecting there to be quite a bit more in there. And I, I was telling Taylor and Sarah before we started recording that the reaction yeah. from a lot of the people that were in the, the lockup and like uh, in the lead up to the budget being tabled in the house were very, very upset about the, the lack of investment because it seems like the, the federal government's out of touch with the, the size and severity of the housing crisis. But um, yeah. to, back to Taylor's main question though, um, yeah. with, with the federal government, they can really spend or tax. Those are the, the two main policy leakers at their disposal. Mm-hmm. And over recent years, they primarily spent money. So when the national housing strategy was uh, announced back in 2017, it was $40 billion. Um, now in 2023, it's gone up to about $89 billion, as um, uh, estimated by, I, I think it was the parliamentary budget officer last month, maybe? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, but, but essentially, um, the, I don't have a clear idea of where all the money has gone. And I'm okay. saying that as the, the policy and advocacy lead for the national group that represents the affordable housing sector. It isn't clear yeah. to us. And like, like yeah. what Marika was saying, it, it took uh, Jenny Kwan, a member of parliament from a Vancouver riding, to grill the CMHC executives in uh, mm-hmm. the Human Resources Committee, like the House Human Resources Committee, to ask yeah. for the data. So just to be clear, it's not it's oh. not clear to you, and I presume other people in the space that you're working in, where that money has gone. I guess what I'm trying to just understand no. is, what, I don't know, it just seems to me like $89 billion is a lot of money. And I, I yeah. definitely take your point about in the most recent budget there being very little, but mm-hmm. Right, nine billion dollars. I sure. feel like you could build a lot yeah. of homes, right? So, yeah, is it is really just a mystery as to why yeah. it hasn't produced results? Well, we have seen some investment, right? Um, and 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 those eighty not that 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 huge chunk of money is actually also it's not doesn't always um, translate into uh, shovels in the ground. Um, but what what it does translate into sometimes is uh, again like tax incentives, uh, financing insurance through CMHC, like kind of pieces that you wouldn't really think about, right? Like when we think about wanting to invest in housing, we're like we're going to build these pieces. Well, CMHC offers a lot of like financing and access to, um, uh, you know, low interest financing and those kinds of pieces. And so some of that investment certainly goes into that. Um, but really, like in my mind, that's just taking funding from one pot and moving it to another pot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you're you're kind of just taxing your your own investment in some ways. Um, but uh, yeah, so so that's where some of that investment went in. And sure, there was some building that happened. The problem is, is that a lot of it gets stuck in uh, institutions like CMHC, for instance. So some of the funding. Some of the announcements that were made in this budget, Jake, correct me if I'm wrong, were actually announced in the previous year's budget. Like thinking of the Municipal Housing Accelerator Fund, for instance, um, and other programs, right? So we, we have seen some investments. We, we do see it. Um, it's just, quite frankly, not enough. And to add on to that, um, yeah. but like Taylor, like your, your point about basically not seeing where all the money is going like it's a fair point <laughs> I, I do agree yeah. with you. um there there aren't as clearly defined performance metrics for the strategies programs as there should be but one of the other issues that um has have been identified not, not just by 
sector advocates like Marika and I, but by independent officers of parliament, the, the parliamentary budget officer and the auditor general. Um, they, they've both indicated that there are uh, serious implementation delays with all of these major programs. So yeah. they're, they're, they're just getting stuck in the bureaucracy. And yeah. as an example, um, one of the, or, or as an example, I should say, of um, changes that have been needed to some of these programs to help um, expedite the rollout of these funds um, with the National Housing Co-Investment Fund, which is the flagship program to build mm -hmm. affordable housing through the strategy. Um, there have literally been over 200 tweaks in the last two and a half years. <laughs> I'm not I'm not exaggerating. We just can't even believe that. Yeah. It, well, I it, can actually, sadly. <laughs> it, like literally over 200 tweaks to try to make it more user friendly so that money can get out quicker. Um, and even still, we're, we're still seeing problems with the money getting out the door. I think when we're having these conversations, it's like so easy to get bogged down in the details because it seems like so many things are wrong, are broken. And, you know, so we have this like $89 billion. We don't really know if it's being, you know, spent effectively. We're not seeing, I guess, like any encouraging measures on the spending or the taxation side coming out of the most recent federal budget. So like if someone is looking at this space right now and trying to understand why are they not nationally building more affordable housing? Like, what does it come down to? Can we kind of take a step back and like, what are the, if we were to kind of dial into, let's say three high level reasons, like what is going wrong? Why are we not seeing affordable housing being built? I'm like trying to say this in a, in a diplomatic sort of way, but uh, I think that it's lacking political will. I think there's an attachment to particular particular kind of political ideological ideological projects that are um, that are kind of uh, getting in the way quite frankly of uh, of investing the way that the state needs to invest in in uh, affordable housing like we have you know uh, countries in Europe that where over half of their housing stock is uh, state-owned beautiful state-owned rental buildings. Um, because their priority is on ensuring that their populace is housed so they have a very thriving economy. Germany is the strongest economy in, in Europe. Uh, they have a very robust state housing system. Um, and I think that there is this reluctance to actually, and I think it's political and, and, and ideological, uh, of actually investing the amount of taxpayer funding uh taxpayer dollars that we need to actually house people i honestly think that i think that there's also um concern uh you know i know that even at a local and regional level developers um and conversations around economic development uh you know folks talk about how we need to have um you know free markets and that that's that will kind of take care of everything and developers say if you put too many restrictions on me then i'm going to leave and i'm going to go go and build somewhere else which i think is often very um empty threats but uh i i think that we're still seeing this kind of political commitment to a particular idea of what government's role should be and it's interfering with uh us being able to really really truly solve the affordable housing problem. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> those are really good points. I, I find it really interesting to look at the way that different countries are structured. And so like a lot of the time, the, there are a lot of housing advocates that have been looking at New Zealand lately. 
Um, New Zealand has one main level of government. So it's a lot easier for them to coordinate things and make their, their agenda happen. In Canada, we, we have a federal system with like two main levels of government um, that have powers divided between each level. And then the provinces also delegate uh, different powers to municipalities. So you basically have every level of government in, in this country um, with different agendas and ideas and oftentimes different political leanings that want to do different things. And so it's really difficult to actually mm. get on the same page because we have a history of, you know, the provinces and the federal government being confrontational to each other, especially now that we have a liberal federal government and mostly conservative governments uh, provincially across the country. Yeah. So they're, they're just like very different ideas of doing things. So like it's really difficult to get everybody on the same page about like how we actually address this crisis, which means that we're, we're gridlocked in a lot of ways and, and doing things. So like, for, for example, um, the, the federal government launched this housing accelerator fund to try to get rid of barriers at the local level because a lot of the barriers to building are local. So like we, we need to be able to address things like that. And, and it, it is, okay. but at the same time, like what Marika was saying, um, there, there's just this lack of political will and it, it baffles me. And like, I, Sarah, I can see the look on your face. And Taylor, I see the look on your face. Because it's the, the, the biggest challenge that is facing like younger people. It's facing newcomers to the country. Um, that we're talking about like what's becoming the largest voting cohort in, in, in yeah. the country. So like you would think there would be political will. And you, you add on top of that, like the, the 905 region of Ontario is one of the most seat rich electorally when we're thinking about like getting elected federally. So you would think okay. that they would want to get the votes of people moving to those areas, which are young people and new Canadians, right? It, it baffles the census, but we, we, we need to continue to push, right? We, 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 I like to say we need a Team Canada approach to housing. We need the federal government to be the captain of Team Canada and they need to pull out all the stops yeah. They need to use every policy lever at their disposal and every other government mm -hmm. needs to do the same so that we can address the crisis. And like, yeah. I, as like one thing to provide a little bit of hope, um, mm -hmm. just because I know like this is really, it, it makes people feel hopeless when we talk about how difficult yeah. these things are. Um, over the last couple of years, Scotiabank and the Bank of Montreal have announced, um, I think combined $25 billion of funding to create affordable housing. Yeah. Um, that equals about 28% of the current national housing strategy. So the, these are um, banks that have decided that it, it behooves them uh, as like main um, drivers of our economy um, to, to actually invest in affordable housing and not just home ownership. Yeah. So think about what we could actually accomplish if our federal government was stepping up and they were putting in putting policies in place to incentivize mm -hmm. more of that investment across the country. We we would solve the problem. Well, yeah. First of all, I agree. I like the idea of repurposing Team Canada to go towards away from the Olympic team and just to whoever is working on the housing <laughs> crisis. I think they would deserve that if they could accomplish it. But I want to go back to the earlier point about this like thing that's lacking being the coordination of government and not that I'm expecting anyone to be an expert on like European politics, but like there's different levels of government, maybe not in New Zealand, which kind of functions like 
a city, but like in Germany and like the Netherlands and like other places where there is, there are really successful state run housing programs. How did they get everyone on board? Because I'm sure that they're at a neighborhood level are the same types of people in Germany saying, I don't want this built in my backyard. So how did they tackle those same types of problems? Good question. Yeah. That is a good question, Marika. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna speculate here, um, but mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, you know, the the rebuilding after World War II, I think, uh, put a lot of, um, there was a lot of opportunity there for uh, folks. Well, we have to completely rebuild many cities um, and a lot of housing, and I think the governments at the time. Uh, made some very specific choices um, around how, I mean, they had to solve a, an immediate housing crisis. Um, and so they had to create, uh, they had to create state-owned housing fairly quickly. Um, and I think that through that action, um, uh, they created a culture where, where uh, the electorate um, and, you know, folks, residents living in countries are like, no, no, this is, yeah, the state does, should, should provide for us. It helps kind of shape a political culture mm -hmm. um, that we have uh, differently here. And folks, um, not only is there like a, you know, so that political culture is, is shaped differently, but we also have... Um, a very kind of different mentality um, in the in North America in particular, kind of this like frontierism, right? That um, that you know settlers came here uh, looking for the biggest chunk of land. You know, you mentioned the end of the war, mm -hmm. and one of the houses that I grew up in as a kid was one of these CMHC built victory homes i guess that were built in yeah. the 40s yeah. you know Silver, little bungalows yeah. yeah with you know two or three two bedrooms i guess three bedrooms if you really squeeze people in a kitchen a bathroom a living room that's it and it was fine uh and my understanding is that many of those like thousands tens of thousands of those were built uh in that mm -hmm. in that time period and then we we're talking a little bit earlier about some of the programs that were in place in the 60s and 70s to build yeah. purpose-built, affordable rentals. I My question, I suppose, is what changed? Why did we decide to stop doing that? And what programs were, were eliminated that uh, prevented us from continuing to build that level of affordable housing? Yeah, um, it, it's a good question. So... With CMHC, they were actually uh, created in 1945 um, to actually house veterans that were coming back from the war. So there, there was like this service that, that they needed to do for the, the servicemen. Um, and over time, it kind of um, morphed into them housing a lot of people that were of lower incomes, or like helping create housing for people of lower incomes. And over time, they, they or became more and more involved with this. And then by the late 60s, there was this boom in uh, affordable housing creation because they actually allowed nonprofits to get involved with um, mm -hmm. managing the housing. And then they basically, like between the end of World War II and up until the early 80s or so, we were in a pretty good economic situation. But then we got to the early to mid 80s and we had crazy high inflation, which they called mm -hmm. stack. Um, and so what ended up happening was we went from this 
uh, period where we were just building and building and building because our population was growing to our governments being like, oh crap, like we need to tackle inflation. Um, so they, they cut tons of spending, including with housing. And um, they, they also cut spending for other social programs as well. But that, that essentially uh, perpetuated up until 2017 when the government finally re-engaged, or I should say the federal government finally re-engaged with housing policy. But the challenge is that that was like four decades of disengagement. So you, yeah. you have four decades of not doing enough to continue to increase housing supply. And it, it, housing demands can grow way faster than supply. So because we weren't really doing anything for four decades, we're in this situation that was created because of a failure of government policy. Could we just go back to those policies now? Would that solve the problem? Or is there a reason that we can't do that anymore? We, we can definitely build on those things, but we also have to acknowledge that the cost to create housing, and I mean like really everything, but it, we're, we're talking about housing. Yeah. Um, it's gone up way, way, oh. it, like, to the point where like, it's so much more expensive to build housing now than it was decades ago, right? And even in that um, parliamentary budget officer report, I we were referring to earlier from, I think it was last month, um, they, yeah. they're basically saying that the, the federal government's ability to spend on housing is diminished because of high inflation, high interest rates, high construction costs. So like we, we do need to rethink how we can tackle the problem because okay. clearly government spending isn't the only solution. So when you talk about solutions, I think um, Jake, you touched on this, right? How the private sector is stepping up to help the affordability issue. Can you talk a little bit more about what the banks are doing and whether you think that there is a role that private companies play in all of this? And, and then I guess it leaves me with the question, like what incentive do you with, do they have? Because I don't really understand. Yeah, it, it's a good question. Um, at, at the end of the day, uh, if we're thinking about private sector companies, they're, they're driven by profit generation. And that's okay, that's why they exist. But if we want them to build the type of housing that we want them to build, we, we need to create incentives for them to build that type of housing. What that looks like exactly, I don't know yet. Um, we need to get people that are much smarter than me to figure that one out, but it, it's definitely a solution. Um, but as it relates to what the banks are doing, um, I'm actually not clear on what that is exactly yet. I know that they've allocated those multi-billion dollars. Um, I think one was 11 billion, another was 14 billion um, to addressing affordable housing shortfalls and that it would be used to fund the creation of affordable housing. But I don't think they've rolled out those programs yet. So that remains yeah. to be seen. Yeah, no, I don't think that they have either. But it really is an interesting, it is an, it, an interesting phenomenon um, where, you know, we generally don't see banks being this generous, right? Um, but they, they see the economic impact of, of a lack of, of housing and a, a lack of affordable housing in communities. Like, they're actually feeling the pain of that now as well. And so I can see, and they're like, wait a second, like we, if we have uh, housing available to, you know, house workers, then, you know, they, they won't, you know, they won't see uh, an impact in their, their profits as well. One thing that I, I just wanted to bring up because I mean, we've, uh, Jake has been advocating for this at the federal level and, you know, us too, as, uh, as part of, of the Keen Housing and Renewal Association, 
um, is that acquisition um, and an acquisition fund or access to financing so um, nonprofits can purchase private rental buildings that come on the market um, and keep them affordable and bring them into essentially the nonprofit or non-market uh, sector. So this is one of the other things that, you know, these are, these are really cool policy pieces that, that can happen. It doesn't take a huge investment from government. Like, I mean, 500 million, which is what we got here in BC to create a, a rental housing protection fund. Um, we're hoping to, to save 2000 units, right? Through that. Um, and you know, $500 million, half a billion dollars. It sounds like a lot of money, um, but it's not going to go super far. Right. Um, especially if we can keep, keep seeing interest rates go up and construction and all of those pieces. Um, but it's a really cool policy uh, mechanism. And it's a way for government to uh, help support it, but also you know, help the building or development of affordable housing. But it also allows the community and the community housing sector um, and local communities to say, look, like this is the type of housing we need. So it brings in a bit more of um, a role of uh, regional regional folks as opposed to you know someone sitting in an office in, in Ottawa saying okay I think like Langley BC for instance needs this many units right so it's it's kind of like a neat it's we're trying to get innovative these days and we're lucky here in BC where we have a government that is willing to kind of uh, walk that process with us but you know yeah, well, that's a good segue into my last question because I know we're almost at the the end of the time that we have before here. But I I want to get at interesting or innovative policies that you have seen work in the past, and this is for both of you, because I think the housing situation right now feels pretty hopeless for a lot of people in this country. Um, if you don't happen to already be a homeowner, it doesn't really feel like you know, you're likely to ever sort of have a stable, affordable housing situation in any major city in the country. But as we've talked about a little bit in this interview, there are examples of other places in the world that have built out large, affordable housing sectors in short periods of time when they managed to pull together the political will to do so. So, are there any historical examples that come to mind that you would point people to as examples of a government or a state successfully doing large-scale build-outs of affordable housing? Yeah, um, well, Marika uh, mentioned Europe earlier, uh, countries across mm -hmm. Europe in, in the aftermath of World War II. And um, we, we did a similar thing here after World War II with CMHC being created. CMHC being the, the crown corporation that's actually um, implementing our, our current national housing strategy. Um, but they, we were also endowed with sufficient funding to, to create uh, the affordable housing for the veterans that were returning home. And then soon after for other uh, Canadians with lower incomes that also needed housing. So we, we, we've talked about um, needing adequate funding and political will to, to solve yeah. these things. It, it's really about that. But at the same time, like we, we need to make sure that the funding can get out the door. And so mm -hmm. like one of the things that we've talked about, um, or sorry, like our, or uh, 
our organization, uh, the Canadian Housing Renewal Association, is talking about, is actually having the, the people that are going to be implementing housing programs involved in the design, development, and delivery of those programs. Because yeah. right now, we're, we're seeing all these implementation delays. We can't get the money out the door. So we CMHC, like they, they're mortgage underwriters. They, they want to be more than that, but at their core, they're mortgage underwriters. And they created all these housing programs to mitigate risk like a mortgage underwriter would, but they, they weren't really keeping the, the user experience in mind, right? So like we, we need to keep that in mind if we want money to get out the door. So in terms of like innovation, that, that is actually a big one that we could see very soon. Because if we actually have people that are going to build affordable housing at the table with the government developing and uh, implementing these programs, then, then we're going to see housing be created a lot quicker. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I totally agree. And in fact, what is interesting, and I, it's not, well, cities like Montreal, for instance, um, have some great policies um, around uh, building, you know, Montreal, uh, sorry, Quebec as a province has some really uh, great history around building out public housing. They play, they have different categories than when we, we use kind of outside of Quebec. They have public housing and social housing. Um, and public housing is that government owned, uh, you know, more for enough, you know, higher, not higher income, but like more middle income folks. And then, and then they got social housing for folks who are, you know, um, need deeply subsidized housing. Um, I think it's a great way to kind of build, build out like at the local level, um, more housing. And, it, you know, it would be helpful that some of that investment is coming from from the federal government, but I think um, municipalities can also be empowered um, to be able to to build out uh, more affordable or public housing. And and it's on my mind because I'm right now I'm actually at a Union of BC Municipalities Housing Summit. So the role of municipalities in this is really like kind of at the forefront of my mind right now. Um, and Ontario municipalities have way more. Um, uh, way more of a role, and also actually in Alberta, way more of a role in, in building and supporting housing. We are really far behind in that in British Columbia. And I think, uh, it, you know, the federal government or under the National Housing Strategy, the the accelerator fund, the municipal accelerator fund, and we're really hoping that that's going to actually help municipalities um, get their processes in place to be able to uh, start supporting the development of affordable housing. I think it's important to, for us to also think about how these various levels of government need to be working together. I think Quebec has, has been successful in that in the past. Um, and we've seen examples of that in Ontario as well. And we really could use more of that in BC. <laughs> um, and, and you know what, Taylor, I know you asked us if, there were like innovative policies that could basically give us hope. But I think <laughs> like there, there's more of the promise of hope than anything else. Um, and like one thing I think will be of interest to. That's pretty thin girl. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> but I, I, think, um, I, I think like one thing that might get uh, you guys at the peak excited is the promise of innovation more, more generally, because uh, housing and residential construction is one of the er only areas of our economy that hasn't seen significant innovation since ba basically the industrial revolution. It's crazy. Yeah. Still, for, for the most part, we still build houses like we did hundreds of years ago with stick built. Um, yeah. But we, yeah. we, we've been yeah. seeing really cool innovations in the uh, ways that we could build. 
Um, like for example, uh, 3D printed construction using like a massive 3D printer to create a home can be done in like 24 hours. It's crazy. Yeah. But it, we, we have these technologies starting to um, scale up, but they're also hindered by building codes being really restrictive. So like it, it's yeah. almost impossible to, to do this, even though the technologies are there. Like there, there's um, a group in BC, there's another one in Alberta, um, another one in Ontario, another one in Quebec that's starting to, to do this in Canada. And so if we could actually help them penetrate the market, we could actually, you know, lower the or reduce these housing shortfalls a lot quicker. Oh, yeah. Scotland is like way ahead of everybody else around this kind of stuff. They're like mm -hmm. they have investment in uh, in industry there to look at how to uh, build, you know, really beautiful, energy efficient. I love the environment, uh, modular housing, right? Like it's it's pretty it's really fantastic. So they're actually investing, uh, the Scottish government is investing in R&D to support that. And I, like, like Jake said, like, we have really cool, there's really cool technology, building technology coming out that we should be taking advantage of. Um, and uh, I would love to see, to see more of that because I think the faster we can build, the better. Okay, Jacob and Marika, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate you taking the time to come on and explain all this to us. Oh, glad we could be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah, super, super happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Okay, well, Sarah, did you leave that uh, feeling any more optimistic about our, our federal government's ability to get housing built or perhaps less so? What do you think? Of course not. Like anytime I leave these conversations, I feel like we've kind of missed the boat. Like every time it's like, oh, well, the countries that are doing really well, like did this thing, right? I guess in the instance of Germany, right? Like over 50 years ago, that could have really set us up for success here. And <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what to, I don't know what to uh, make of it. How about you? Was there anything optimistic that you took away from that conversation? Well, I was kind of shocked that even the people working in this space don't seem don't really know where the money is going or like what output we're getting for this funding i guess that's what i really wanted to better understand is like 89 billion dollars is not nothing right and the outcome i'm not it, it seems very uncertain even to people who are closest to the money or ought to be closest to the money so i guess it left me feeling a little bit skeptical of efforts to um, do more, you know, state-funded affordable housing builds, which I would love to see, but it just seems to be a disconnect between what's committed in terms of spending and the output that's coming out on the other side. I thought it was interesting to hear about some of the other ways that you know governments could potentially approach this through sort of tax incentives or things that maybe we used to have in uh, previous decades but no longer no longer do that's interesting that seems like it could be promising but overall i would say yeah it did not make me more optimistic about this getting solved it seems like we just need this like top-down approach that requires a very very high level of collaboration down to the provinces, 
down to the municipalities, down to like the individuals who are making a bunch of noise in like counselors' ears to prevent, you know, other people from building. I don't know if it's that simple, but I think what's promising is looking back at some of the policies that have maybe seen some sort of success to this idea that, okay, maybe there can be funding allocated, um, you know, towards making sure that, you know, if a condo is put up for sale, they, there is a nonprofit that has access to it that can buy it out. I think maybe, I I don't know how to think about it, but those, I think little pieces, um, it's easy to get lost in the little pieces. And so it's important to look at this big picture, but those little pieces, like they do stack up to some pretty favorable outcomes. Yeah. You know, it's frustrating having these conversations, I think, because, the more that we have them, the thornier and more difficult it seems like this problem is. And the less that I feel that it's going to be solved, I would love to just someday we're going to have someone on who's going to have a grand theory of the housing in Canada. And they're just going to be like, we got to do these eight things and that's going to fix it. And I'm going to feel great about that. But if until then, you, yeah, I sort of leave these conversations to- being like, oh, God, come on. <laughs> And if that's you and you're listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you because yeah, reach out. we got to get you on. And I don't know too, like, was I the only one also sitting here as well? I think we're talking about affordability and we have this measure, right, too, that it's supposed to be like 30% of your gross income. And being somebody who has like started their professional career yeah. in Toronto <laughs> and I'm here hearing that it's like weird, that it's like very bad. And I'm like, that's. I just thought that was normal that like people were paying oh, 40, 50%. Me and everyone I know. Right? Yeah. Outrageous. But well, I guess that's a good place as any to leave it uh, for today. So this has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. You can follow me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Bartnika. And you can get more episodes of Free Lunch by searching and following Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. Also, subscribe to our daily business newsletter at www.readthepeak.com. And we will see you next week.